Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 15, reading through verse 17. As you're turning there, uh, let me just say to you that my friend, a friend whom I've never met, but one who was a mentor to me, a real teacher to me, uh, and whom I look forward to meeting when we are both fully restored, uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 15 sermons on verses 15 and 16 because he thought they were so important for the life of the church. Fifteen sermons. He preached them in 1960 in London. And again, because he felt that the church needed desperately to understand what is contained in these verses. So not because Martin Lloyd-Jones thought they were important, but because they are the word of God for us, his people. Read with me verses 15 to 17 of Romans chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, grant this spirit of whom we have just read, grant this same spirit wed to this your word so that in the mystery and miracle of preaching, Our hearts, our lives might be changed, lifted up, encouraged, deeply affected, so that we might cry out, Abba, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Just about everybody knows what it feels like to have a bad cold or a touch of the flu. Uh, or a low-grade fever, you know how it sucks the energy out of you, you know how it leaves you feeling depleted. Over the last weeks, I've been suggesting to you that there are some, there are some viruses in our culture. Uh, and I'm not trying to be smart or cute or anything with any of this stuff. Please understand, um, I, I'm a desperate man who needs desperately to understand himself and the world in which he lives in order better to understand what it is that God has done in Jesus Christ. And, and I've suggested to you that there are some viruses out there that I do think affect us, and, and they are kind of like low-grade fevers. And, and I've mentioned them to you, and I've given you names for them, and, and the technical names for them are rationalism and empiricism. And, and just kind of simply put, uh, they, they are these. This is what they are. Rationalism basically says, if I can't understand it with my poor, pathetic little brain, then it isn't real. It isn't true. If I can't make sense of it, it's foolishness. And empiricism simply says, if I can't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, feel it, measure it, weigh it, then it isn't really real. It isn't really true. Think Spock, for those of you 
who knows Star Trek. Think Spock. Remember, not Benjamin Spock, the pediatrician that so many of our parents gave mixed advice to, but think Mr. Spock from Star Trek. Remember Spock? Whenever a decision about something needed to be made, they went to Spock. Whenever particular wisdom or insight needed to be acquired or secured, they went to Spock. Why? Because Spock was above things like feeling and emotion. Uh, he was above these, these heartfelt affections and desires and drives. He was above it all. He was the paradigmatic modern man. Everything, everything was a function of rationality. Everything was a function of what could be seen and measured. And from what you can reason to and what you can measure and weigh and see and feel and touch. Certain conclusions are drawn and Mr. Spock was the one that everybody went to because he was above all of this messy, emotional business. I wonder what Mr. Spock would do with Romans chapter 8 and verses 15 and 16. I wonder what Mr. Spock would do with these verses. You're not those who have received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I wonder what Mr. Spock would do with those verses. If you add a dose, just a little sprinkling of the third virus that I think is out there, cynicism. You add a little cynicism to rationalism and empiricism. I want to suggest to you that the force of what Paul is saying in these verses is gutted. And the gospel that we say we believe loses its sweetness, its beauty, its reality. Here's the question I have to ask myself when I come to these verses, and I've been thinking about them for a month now. I have to ask myself, and I have to ask you to ask yourselves, when we read these verses, do we know anything of what Paul is talking about here? See, what, what's happening here is that, that we are being plunged into the realities of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're being plunged into things that our minds can't compass about, that our minds can't fully comprehend. We're being plunged into things that can't be weighed out. They can't be measured. They can't be sniffed out. They can't be tasted. We're being plunged into things that are real and true and which no amount of cynicism can infect. The question is, have we been infected? Have we been infected 
by rationalism and by empiricism and by cynicism to such an extent that we don't really have any expectation at all that what Paul is describing here is intended to be really and truly a part of our experience as Christians. I'm asking myself this question. Am I so shaped by this world in which I live that I am detached from, disconnected from, suspicious of the kind of thing that Paul's describing in these verses? This is life in the Spirit, Mike Malone. This is the God of glory, Mike Malone. This is the God of glory who has given the Son of glory, the Son of His love, to secure for you these things, to secure for you life and peace, verse 6, which come to you through the agency of the Spirit. This is the God of glory who by the Son of glory, the Son of His love, through the Spirit has given you life. Verses 12 and 13 and 10, the Spirit whose power, by whose power we put to death the deeds of the body. Verse 13, the spirit who will give life to our mortal bodies. Verse 11, and the spirit who having brought us from death to life by regeneration, by new birth, is now leading us and will never ever let go of those whom he has first laid hold of. This is the spirit. And now Paul is telling us, that by this same Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. And we'll talk about this in a few weeks, but the reality of suffering is an inescapable reality, and it is a stunning thing that the Apostle connects. This crying out, Abba, Father, which you know means Papa, means Daddy. It is a term of endearment, a term of affection. He connects that to the realities of suffering. These children sitting on this front row right here need to know when they scrape their knees that their Daddy is there. And you and I, as beloved children of this heavenly Father, by God's grace, by the agency of the Spirit, are to be shaped by this Spirit, nurtured by this Spirit, affected by this Spirit, to the extent that we, like dependent children with scraped knees, cry out, not in fear, not out of bondage and slavery, but in joy and freedom, cry out, Abba, Father. How much do I know of this? Where we are is right in the thick of Paul's theology of the Spirit. And I ask these questions, do I know anything of this? Do you know anything of this? Not to criticize us or condemn us for what we don't have, but simply to suggest to us that there is something to this Christian life that transcends our abilities to understand or measure. And there is something in this ministry of the Spirit which is a medicine against the cynicism that so permeates our culture. 
There is something experiential here, something Mr. Spock would know nothing of. And it is a part of the warp and woof and fabric of the Christian life. There is something here like what is reflected in the hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Folks, we're to have tastes of this. So I want you to think with me about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I'll try and have you out of here by one o'clock. I want you to think with me about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what the scriptures tell us about what he does. We've been thinking about this, some aspects of his work. We've talked first about his work of regeneration. It is the spirit of God who gives new birth. Peter refers to this in his first letter. First Peter 1.3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Who has done this? The Spirit has done this. The Spirit has given us this new life, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It is the work of the Spirit in behalf of the Father and the Son to raise people from spiritual death to newness of life. He is the agent of the, of the purposes of the Father and the Son to accomplish that work, effecting in people's lives what is called in the church, what people have called across the centuries of the church, the great change. The great change. The change apart from which it is impossible to understand, see, think about, care for the kingdom of God at all. This is what Jesus and Nicodemus talked about in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus was mystified by this. This was incomprehensible to him. Jesus said, you must be born again. And unless you are born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus' response was, huh? He didn't understand it. And the reason that he didn't understand it is because he had not yet by the Spirit been given eyes to see it. But by the end of John's gospel, it appears that he did see it because Nicodemus is with Joseph of Arimathea taking the broken, bruised, dead body of Jesus to lay it in a tomb. He was no longer ashamed, no longer afraid, no longer had to come to Jesus at night. Right in the midst of daylight, he, with Joseph of Arimathea, took the body of Jesus and laid it in a tomb. Somewhere along the way, the great change was effected in the life of Nicodemus. And he saw amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. Now I have to stop here and I have to press this. And I have to ask this question again, not to criticize about what you don't have, but simply to ask the question, does this mean anything to you? Does this make sense? 
Do you understand? Do you know? Can you point to something in your life which says, yes, I see that. I know what that means. I am a new creature. I have tasted this new life. Something has happened to me. Not something I did to me. Not something somebody else did to me. It's not a function of going to church and sitting in a pew or a chair for however many years. No, something has happened to me. And I have to say to you, if you can't say that about yourself, I beg you, I'm in dead earnest about this, I beg you, please make an appointment so that we can talk. Because this is where the Christian life begins. It begins with something happening to you, a resurrection, a deliverance, the great change which is effected by none other than the sovereign God of the universe through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And if your heart is singing right now, you know whereof I speak. And if your heart is doing nothing right now, please call me. I beg of you so that we can talk. This is where it begins. This work which the Spirit does, effecting this new birth, this new life. But it doesn't end there. Here is the second aspect of the Spirit's ministry. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22, and Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14. How this is so rich. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, in whom? In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee, or the deposit, the down payment, the guarantee of our final inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit is a seal. Now, there are two things here in this idea of sealing in this passage. The first is the seal itself. There are two ways to think about sealing. There is when you seal something shut, hermetically sealing it so that nothing can get in or get out. That's not the meaning of the word here. The word seal describes a mark of ownership, a mark of authentication. Remember what kings used to do when they would send important missives throughout their kingdom, important letters throughout their kingdom. They would melt some wax on the document and then the king's seal, his signet ring, would be pressed into that wax, validating its authority, recognizing on that that it was a decree coming from the king himself and all of the authority and majesty of the king stood behind that seal. Matthew 26, Matthew 27, verse 66, after the resurrection of Jesus, after the death of Jesus and before the resurrection, the authorities commanded the Roman guard to put a seal on the tomb. It wasn't a hermetic seal. It was the seal of the emperor. 
And what that seal said is this. If you mess with this seal, if you mess with this tomb, if you do anything to move this stone, you will face the full magisterial power and authority of Caesar. You will face his wrath. See what God has done? The ministry of the Holy Spirit in sealing you. He has put his kingly mark on you. His kingly mark is his very own spirit. And in putting his mark upon you, it is a mark of ownership. And it is a declaration to principalities and powers, whether heavenly or earthly. If you mess with mine, you will deal with me. And the full authority and majesty, not of an earthly Caesar but of the God of heaven and earth stands behind that seal. You've been marked with this seal. And whether heavenly or earthly, any power that trifles with you will face the king of glory. He owns you. You belong to him. If you're a Christian this morning. And the other thing about this is remarkable The giving of the Spirit as a down payment is a promise of something greater. But notice this. When God gives you a down payment, he gives you himself. He gives you himself. Because your final inheritance is, in fact, him. Him. I'm so often struck by Moses' interaction with God. After he has come down from the mountain and the people have played the harlot and they've broken the tablets and the marriage is off and Moses then intercedes, intervenes for the people. And God says, in effect, this is a rough paraphrase, says, in effect, okay, I'll give you some new tablets. But I'm not going up with this people because they're hard-hearted and stiff-necked. I'll send my angel before you, but I'm not going with this people. And Moses, in effect, says, if you're not going, I'm not going. Because to go into the promised land without you, to go into the promised land without you, means it's no longer a promised land. And it is better to be in the wilderness with you than to be in paradise without you because paradise without you is not paradise. It's just an empty place. And God gives you a promissory note, a down payment, a deposit. He gives you himself. And that leads to this next thing. There's still more. It isn't just that you're sealed. It isn't just that you've been raised. John 14, 23. See, I can't, I can't, I can't get my mind around this. I just want my heart to be gripped by it. John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him we will come to him and make our home 
with him. The Father and the Son will move in. And how will they move in? It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring the very presence of this glorious Father and this Son who is glorious, the Son of His love. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the self-effacing ministry of the Holy Spirit to give attention to, focus upon the lavish and infinite and eternal love that exists between the Father and His Son and to bring that love, that delight, that joy into my soul, my heart, moving into my life. That is the Spirit's ministry to take up residence, bringing the very person of the Father and the Son to dwell in my life. And here's the fascinating thing about that passage. The word that's translated home in verse 23 of John 14, the word that is translated home, we will make our home with him, appears only two times in the scriptures. The other place it appears is earlier in the chapter, John 14, 2. Where Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many rooms. And I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come to you and take you so that you may be with me where I am. That's the force of that language. And the word that's translated rooms actually refers, some of you know this, actually refers to a temporary dwelling place occupied by a person who is on a journey to a permanent destination. That's what John 14.2 is saying. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but that's not your final destination. That's the intermediate place. And you know what's coming after the intermediate place? I'm going to come to you. If I prepare the place, that's where you will be, but I will come to you. And when I come to you, that's when I take you to the final destination, the new heaven and the new earth and a perfected and glorified body. That word is used in John 14, 23 of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in you. What is being said? That you're a temporary dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, a temporary residence for the Father and the Son, and that they someday will leave you? No, that's not the force of it. The force of it is simply recognizing this. This dwelling place where the Father and the Son, by the agency of the Holy Spirit, are pleased now to dwell, is their temporary residence until they have transformed this temporary residence into a glorious and permanent residence like the body of Jesus Christ, where they will dwell forever. It's all about being temporary and looking for what is permanent. And in the interim, the God of heaven and earth, about whom Solomon says, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. The God of heaven and earth is pleased to make me 
his dwelling place. He raises me from death to life, does the Spirit. I am sealed in, with, and by him, authenticating the Father's ownership of me, reassuring me that if anybody trifles with me, whether a power in heaven or on earth, that power must face the majesty of God. And I am as well the dwelling place of the God of heaven and earth, and it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. The ministry of the Spirit that is described in in verses 15 and 16 suggests so very strongly that the Holy Spirit is not a silent presence. The Holy Spirit of God, the one who brings the presence of the Father and the Son to dwell in my soul, is not a silent presence. I am not merely the fruit of his life-giving power. I am not merely sealed by, in, and with him. I am not merely indwelt by him. He is active. He is cultivating, nurturing, feeding, nourishing in me a sense an awesome awareness. And can I please ask us only to use the word awesome when the word ought to be used about something awesome. The Spirit of God is at work in me to create an awesome sense of my own standing as a son. That's verse 15. That's from last week. Don't think gender, think status. Women, girls in the audience, don't think gender, think status. That is what it refers to. The Spirit dwells within me to nurture, to cultivate an awareness, an awesome sense of my own standing as the favored honored, loved, delighted in son who inherits the privilege and wealth of his father. That is the ministry of the spirit. And you talk about a quiver in your liver. When my soul begins to apprehend that, my soul will quiver. But it doesn't end there. Notice that the language shifts in verse 16. And Paul moves from the idea of an honored, favored, loved, and delighted in son who inherits privilege and wealth to the language of children. It is so striking that on the one hand, he uses images of adoption, a legal process by which when I become something that I was not, he shifts from that language And uses this word children. And it is a word that refers to offspring. Not to an infant. Not to a young child. But to offspring. Irrespective of gender. And it is a word that conveys affection and intimacy. 
And Paul is saying there is some sort of conversation going on in the soul, in the heart, in the life of the Christian. Some sort of mysterious communication and interaction between the spirit who nurtures and cultivates this sense of my sonship and my own spirit as a child rushing into the embrace of my father in the person of the spirit crying out, Abba, Daddy. The spirit witnessing with my spirit that I am, in fact, the offspring of my father, the child of my heavenly father. It's the spirit's work to nurture this in us. What does this look like? See, folks, I'm telling you, this is where you've got to work to lay aside your rationalism your empiricism, your cynicism, your adulthood, your maturity, your being a big, strong guy, a big, strong girl. You've got to lay aside those things and revel in this ministry of the Spirit which cultivates in the children of God a sense of their delightful, helpless dependence upon their Father. I can't wait. I can't wait to hold my offspring in my arms. That's the picture that Paul is seeking to paint. For you, the God of heaven and earth embraces you in the way that I, by God's grace, will take that little baby girl in my arms and hold her to my chest and delight in her in the way that I delighted in her mother. And that is the high point of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this side of final inheritance. That is the ministry of the Spirit. I've got stories. What does this look like? What does this feel like? Barbara and I were living in Indiana. A young banker named Eric Martz came to faith in Jesus Christ through our church. And he couldn't come to church without weeping. He couldn't sing. He just couldn't sing. It isn't that he couldn't sing. He couldn't sing. He would come to worship and he would read the words of these stale, dusty old hymns that we sing. And his heart would break because he'd never heard or understood that the God of heaven and earth might love him as tenderly as a father loves a newborn baby. Jonathan Edwards, biggest brain this country has ever produced. You think this is all about rationalism and empiricism and propositions and factoring things and weighing things and figuring stuff out? There's something more, folks. 
Jonathan Edwards, once as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place as my manner commonly has been to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and his meek and gentle condescension. This grace appeared so calm and sweet to me that the person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, conception, which continued as near I can judge about an hour and which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears, weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express except emptied and annihilated to lie in the dust and yet to be full of Christ to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be so perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. An hour. John Flavel, English Puritan pastor. This will be the last one. I've got a million of them. John Flavel, in biographical language, but describing something autobiographical, describes going on a journey, traveling between villages. And and as was true with Edwards, while he's on his horse, he decides he's going to make good use of the time. And so he decides to examine himself and and examine the gospel and and think of the life to come and, and how he was living in the present. And he says this, thus going on his way, his thoughts began to swell and rise higher and higher like a flood. Such was the intention of his mind, such the ravishing tastes of heavenly joys, and such the full assurance of his interest therein, that he utterly lost sight and sense of the world and all concerns thereof, and for some hours knew no more where he was than if he had been asleep in his bed. He said that death had the most amiable face that he had ever beheld, except for the face of Jesus Christ. And that he could not remember, though he believed he would die there, that he had one thought of his dear wife or children or any other concernment. And many years after this, he called that day one of the days of heaven and professed he understood more of the light of heaven by it than by all the books he ever read or discourses he had ever entertained about it. A learned man who said, an hour of the spirits testifying to his spirit that he was a child of good, of, of God, 
served him better than all of his years of study and reflection upon eternity and heaven. Folks, that's what Paul's talking about here. And I ask myself, and I ask us, do we know anything about this? Do we pray for it for one another? Do we pray for it as a church? Do we pray and call upon this God who loves us so tenderly to manifest this tender love to our souls? This incomprehensible, high and deep and wide and long love. Do you pray that for me? Do you pray that for each other? That God would do for us what Paul describes in this eighth chapter. Do you think it's possible that you could actually turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face so that all of the things of this earth, economic difficulties, illnesses, troubles, heartaches, the things of earth grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Do you think that's possible? I want it to be possible. I want it to be real for me and for you. Would you... Would you just be quiet with me for a couple of moments? So often, after preaching is over, I just you know, I feel like we need to push the pause button. And we need to stop. And somehow just let this stuff roll around in our heads and hearts for just a bit. So before I pray, would you do that? Would you just... Be quiet before the Lord and listen to whatever it is that he might be saying. Let's pray together. Father, I can only pray for myself, and yet I can, I can pray, I guess, for all of us too. I, I beg you that you would overcome my pride, that you would overcome my self-consciousness. You would overcome the viruses from the surrounding world that have infected me, particularly cynicism. You would overcome my unbelief. And somehow ravish me with the height and length and breadth and depth of your love. O Holy Spirit of God, I need this. I beg you for it, for me and for all of us. Please, O God, please stand between us. And these insidious, creeping 
viruses that rob us of our joy and restore to us the joy, the deep, deep, soul-satisfying joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.